0: Folks, tune in and let's bite the talk with me, Sharada Keats, from the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, known as GAIN. Welcome to the second episode of GAIN's podcast series, Bite the Talk, where we chat to experts about all things to do with food systems transformation, how our food systems can be better shaped to deliver the outcomes we desire, especially better nutrition and more healthy societies. Today's episode is called A Fortified Future, and I'm chatting with very distinguished guests, Dipika Matthias, a senior program officer working in nutrition and global development at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and with Gain's own Penjani Makambula, who leads our large-scale food fortification program. A big welcome to you both.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Dipika, Can we start with you telling us a little bit about you? What's your background and what do you do at the Gates Foundation?
2: Thanks, Sharada. Yeah, hi, I'm a senior program officer at the Gates Foundation leading a portfolio of investments in the area of food fortification. My career did not start in food fortification. In fact, I was uh, doing a lot of work in the commercialization and market development of other global health technologies, so vaccines and diagnostics, immunization, uh, injection delivery devices and such, and spent a lot of my career at PATH um, doing that kind of work. Sort of stumbled into fortification in 2008 when I was asked to lead a rice fortification project there. And um, and that's how my my work opened up to this field, which is such such a rich field. It it brings in so many different um, types of challenges. And so I'm very happy to be in
0: this space. Thank you. And uh, Penjani, what about you? Can you tell us some of your history and experience here at GAIN?
1: Yeah, sure. I started off uh, working in food industry and was involved in fortification of, of edible oils and, uh, and margarines. I then moved out of the food industry and spent a bit of time in, in the gases industry, moved on to work in higher education, and then got back into food production before I eventually came to GAIN. So I've been at GAIN for, for around about six years now, and I lead the work on food fortification.
0: Thank you. So we're in for a treat hearing from both of you today. Penjani, I know it's a busy week for you. We have the second Global Summit on Food Fortification coming on Friday, November 6th. What is it all about? Who's going to be there? And what are you hoping to achieve?
1: So in a nutshell, what we want to do with the summit is to celebrate all the hundred years that has gone on uh, you know, for solidization but more importantly is to celebrate some of the recent progress that we have seen in, in food fortification. So for example, there is now over 80 countries where you know, by law you, you have to fortify grains, that's maize, wheat or rice. There is 36 countries where there's mandatory legislation for oil fortification and there is over 140 countries you know, that implement solidization program. But we also want to look back to the first summit in Arusha in 2015 and look at the progress that food fortification programs have made globally. But looking ahead, you know, there are challenges that we see in fortification programs, so we want to reflect on the challenges. Uh, In terms of who is going to be there, there's quite a, a range of delegates and speakers from international organizations like the UN agencies, for example, we expecting, you know, private sector participants, NGOs, civil society organizations, but more importantly, we also have ministers. For example, ministers from Bangladesh, from India, from Nigeria, from Gambia, and from Mozambique. You know, just to mention, you know, a few examples. So, in a nutshell, you know, that's what the summit is all about.
0: Thanks, Hengjani. So, Dipika, from a nutrition perspective. Why does fortification matter? How important or impactful is it really? Fortification is, uh, matters because it's
2: such a critical underpinning to a comprehensive nutrition strategy. You know, I see it as one of those great equalizers in our collective effort to give every child a chance at a healthy, productive life because its reach is so broad, it's so inexpensive, it requires no or little behavior change by consumers, Um, And moreover, it changes the the basic food supplies so that all consumers, even the most vulnerable can benefit from it. So we know microdutrient malnutrition affects about 2 billion people today. It reduces the GDP uh, of developing countries by about 2% on average. And iron deficiency alone is responsible for about half of that reduction. Um, So it's not a niche problem, and nor is the solution niche. It's a properly designed and implemented food fortification program can impact the entire population of a country. I think food fortification also matters because it works. Um, We know from the very large evidence base, we have seen dramatic reductions in anemia from improved iron stores, uh, reductions in goiter from reductions in iodine deficiency, reductions in neural tube defects due to reductions in folate deficiency, um, and also reductions in mortality from vitamin A, uh, reductions in vitamin A deficiency. And finally, I think fortification is One of those sort of timeless interventions. It's relevant even with today's changing consumption patterns. Uh, Because fortification focuses on those staple foods and condiments that are widely used, even as populations begin consuming more processed foods or foods prepared outside the house, these staples are relevant because they are critical ingredients to those foods. It can impact the entire um, country if if we have well-run fortification programs.
0: Well, you certainly make a strong case for fortification. It, it sounds brilliant. So Penjani, why haven't all countries in the world made food fortification mandatory?
1: I mean, I will start by saying that, you know, not all countries need to have mandatory legislation on food fortification. In general, I think we look at three key principles, you know, before we advocate for mandatory, you know, legislation for for food fortification. The first key principle is the existence of micronutrient deficiencies uh, in a population within a country where it is a public health concern. The second is to look at what foods are people consuming in that particular country or geography. So if there is an availability of food where the per capita consumption makes sense that when the food is fortified, it's gonna make a public health difference, then that's a key principle that we take into consideration. And the third is to look at the degree of industry consolidation or centralization. Now, in order to fortify, we really need to produce uh, the products at scale. So the higher the industry consolidation or centralization, the higher the probability that we'll be able to reach a large population with fortified foods. So we look at those three key principles and if all those are positive, then it does make sense for us or for the countries to mandate food fortification programs.
0: So from a donor perspective, Deepika, how can donors help? And, and what are the interests for donors in investing in food fortification?
2: We really believe the market would not come together in the absence of external donor support. You know, although fortification is a very elegant, simple solution to a, to a massive problem, you just add critical micronutrients to the foods a population is already consuming, we know it's a significant challenge to actually get programs designed and implemented correctly. It often requires new technologies to withstand processing, storage, delivery, and food preparation techniques, um, requires addressing failed markets. Uh, consumers are purchasing foods based on taste and cost. Therefore, food producers have a little incentive to comply with government mandates, and governments have few resources to establish the oversight needed. So this field needs a lot of engagement, it requires public, private, engagements, high degree of coordination across the whole value chain, and often new infrastructure. Um, So while the Gates Foundation is a large donor in this space, we know we can't do it alone, and we need others to see fortification as critical a priority as we do. I think the other reason why we invest in this space is because it improves our return on other investments. Um, As we know, uh, food fortification in itself is a highly cost-effective investment, but it also underpins so many other health areas that we're investing in such as malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, and other infectious disease. In fact, about 50% of the children who die under five in the developing world, their deaths are linked to malnutrition. So uh, I think working simultaneously on micronutrient malnutrition can help us reduce the size and severity of the problem, um, but also improve the effectiveness of our other interventions, even like vaccines. So it's, it's a good investment for us as well.
0: Thank you. So, Penjani, we've, we've heard about mandating food fortification, and Tipika's just talked a bit about compliance there. What, what are the challenges that compliance poses, and what does GAIN do to help, and where does the Gates Foundation come into all of this?
1: The legislation is a necessary condition in a number of countries, but not sufficient. So there are quite a number of things that we look at for a food fortification program to become compliant. Particularly most important is to ensure that the quality of premix is of an acceptable standard. And then secondly, is also the availability of premix itself. So premix production is concentrated in a few countries or areas around the world. So in Asia, typically in China and India, in Europe and, and in North America. So a lot of the countries, predominantly in Africa and Asia, import vitamin and amino premix. So ensuring that premix is, is available locally for producers is key. You know, third, we also need to look at and build capacity to fortify you know, correctly according to standards by industry. But lastly, but not least, is also the ability of governments to be able to to monitor and enforce the fortification standards. So what you need is a level playing field for industry that they're all fortifying and, you know, playing by the rules of the game. Because otherwise, if one company is fortifying and the other one is not, it's not fair to those that are fortifying. So we do provide technical assistance you know, to do with capacity for both industry and government, but also provide support to, to governments towards ensuring that there is a level playing field and a, an enabling environment for industries you know, to fortify. So you asked the question about the Gates Foundation in terms of where do they come in? So Gates Foundation has been you know, quite generous in terms of providing resources uh, you know, for countries to kickstart fortification programs or to scale up you know, fortification programs. They can take, you know, some some risks. So, you know, they can invest in research and development. They can try out new systems or new business models. But they have the flexibility to be able to do that, and that's where they've also been particularly helpful uh, in food fortification programs.
0: That's fascinating, Penjani, Dipika. What do you say to people who say? Fortification isn't part of a healthy diet. Fortification is just an excuse for the purveyors of ultra processed foods that are high in fat and salt and sugar, full of unhealthy things, to pretend that the food that they're providing is healthy to con the customers. How would you respond to those kinds of arguments? Well,
2: I mean, number one, I would separate those issues. Um, The fact that some food manufacturers might inappropriately use fortification to compensate for higher fat, salt, or sugar content should not detract from the fact or the intended purpose of fortification, which is to cost effectively bridge dietary gaps in micronutrient intake, particularly for vulnerable consumers. Today, I actually think the scenario of uh, manufacturers using fortification or misusing fortification is probably small. Um, for the populations that we're most interested in serving, many of them live in rural areas where they don't have access to those sort of processed foods, or um, populations that, that do maybe live in urban areas but don't have access from a standpoint of affordability. Um, most of the populations are purchasing the staple foods and condiments that are fortified and directly using them in the home and cooking in the home. Of course, there are some fortified ingredients like iodized salt that. Are making their way into processed foods. Um, you know, for instance, in Thailand, only about 30% of the iodine intake actually comes from the salt. Um, the rest is coming from processed foods, so seasoning powders and meatballs and all sorts of other, um, you know, processed foods. So I think you know this is not inherently bad. This is just something we need to watch out for and the mis- misuses essentially of fortification to compensate for other issues. I think other interventions are needed to reduce the consumption of, of fat, salt and sugar. Um, and those you know, need to come through r- regulations, taxations, and, uh, taxation and other kinds of interventions.
0: Thank you, that's very clear. So Panjani, let's talk rice. Rice fortification is an emerging opportunity, but at last count, it was only mandatory in seven countries. So why don't more countries fortify rice if it's such a great thing to do um, and why should they? Why should they be looking into it
1: i mean i guess there's been quite a number of reasons why rice fortification has been slow you know to take off i think the first has been around the technology to do with with rice fortification so you typically can fortify rice in three ways by mixing the vitamin and minerals with rice so essentially you, you, you're mixing a powder with rice or by coating uh, a vitamin and mineral premix into the rice i mean in both cases depending in which part of the world you are, for some people will wash, you know, their rice and therefore you may lose, you know, the vitamin and minerals. But a more preferable way of fortifying rice is is the use of fortified rice kernels. And essentially what you do is you mill the rice and, you know, mix it with vitamin and minerals and through an extruder produce you know, kennels that look like, you know, rice. So you essentially blend the fortified rice kennels with the rice itself. So that's, you know, perhaps the way, you know, going forward. Now, one of the challenges has been, you know, more local availability for fortified, you know, rice kennels. There is need for more investment around, you know, local production and regional production for fortified rice kennels. But also the other challenge on rice has been in a number of countries, particularly in Africa and Asia, has been the fragmented nature of, of, of the rice industry. So you have large numbers of small-scale small producers. But over time, you know, there is industry consolidation happening you know, throughout Africa, particularly in West Africa where the rice consumption is high and, and, and in Asia as well. So you know, the ability to be able to produce now fortified rice kernels Plus, the industry consolidation makes rice fortification much more feasible than what it was in the past. But also what we need in most countries is for governments to be able to move forward and put together standards that industry can use to fortify rice but also for governments to move in and and integrate rice into social safety net programs so some other countries are already leading the way on this so india for example and bangladesh who have you know social safety net programs they are now progressively you know integrating fortified rice uh in the food basket
0: Tipika, you're um you're into innovation at the gates foundation what innovative solutions do we need to improve fortification
2: I think some of the uh, largest opportunities for impact um, in innovation are in how we design programs and how we execute programs. We know that we are not designing programs effectively. In fact, we're not designing them to really fill the gap between the micronutrient intake through the diet and the RDI, so recommend daily intake. So we need better ways to set standards. What sort of data and modeling innovations can we? bring to bear to really design the most appropriate fortification program so they're set at the right levels. We're choosing the right vehicles, number one, and we're setting the fortificates at the right levels to really make an impact in the population. I do think there's other sort of innovation that comes along with that. So um, beyond the modeling and data innovations, um, we do need uh, supportive legislation to ensure that those standards are met and, and also you know, moving from voluntary to mandatory. So, Um, We have provided a lot of technical assistance to mills and labs and government regulators and other major stakeholders around the world to improve compliance, but yet we're still at substandard compliance. Um, And one of the ways we're sort of pushing and exploring is really in bringing digital tools to fortification quality monitoring. This could be capturing quality data through the internet of thing devices. So IOT devices say handheld devices um, and placing that information on databases which can be seen by others by say both governments and downstream buyers. I think these digital tools will drive transparency in fortification quality um, and and help to therefore incentivize other millers and others to come on board. We rely a lot on government regulators to do their external monitoring. Of course, they're, you know, they've strapped budgets and not enough resources. Um, and so the whole system collapses. So I think, you know, the use of digital tools can really shift reliance on the government to collect the data, shift that to industry instead. I think the, the third benefit of having digital tools um, available is that we can potentially extend fortification to more fragmented small and medium-sized enterprises which have typically been written off of fortification programs, yet they're so critical to our effort to reach nutritionally vulnerable consumers. So I do think that we need to um, do a lot more in the area of digitization. And then the other domains, product innovations, I think there's certainly areas we can improve around iron innovation, um, addressing some of the sensory challenges of soluble forms, by availability of non-soluble forms. This can all improve our ability to reach consumers with these critical micronutrients. And then finally, partnership innovation. We need to do more with um, those who are uh, providing fortification input. So premix manufacturers, equipment manufacturers, I think there's more engagement that we can have through public-private partnerships um, to bring their knowledge and heft to uh, fortification programs.
0: Thank you. What a comprehensive landscape you've set out for us there on innovation. So Penjani, we haven't talked a lot about how controversial fortification can be. And as Gaines' own the self-described in-house fortification evangelist, what do you say to people who say, we don't need fortification, we just need more diverse, varied, healthy diets that are rich in fruits and nuts and leafy green vegetables and eggs and fish? How do you approach these people when they tell you fortifications not, shouldn't be on the menu?
1: I mean, I think first and foremost, fortification doesn't need to be controversial, and there is no contradiction between, you know, saying people should eat diets that are rich in fruits, you know, eggs, fish, and nuts. We all agree, and in an ideal world, yes, we should be consuming a diverse diet, but we all know in the real world, Not everybody has access to, you know, fresh and nutritious foods like eggs and fish. And that's particularly because cost is a key factor. So we know millions and millions of people rely on consuming energy-dense diets, you know, mostly from maize, wheat, rice, you know, products like those. So the question then becomes, you know, what do you do in that situation? So ensuring that you're fortifying foods that they are regularly eating on a daily basis, actually helps us all to ensure that they are getting their micronutrient intake. So as I say, it doesn't need to be controversial. In an ideal world, yes, we should all be you know, consuming diverse foods, and that's what we promote as a gold standard, but we live in the real world and we got to solve the problems you know, in the here and now.
0: Thank you, Penjani. Talking about um, diverse diets and um, thinking about other ways we might get our micronutrients, something that hasn't really come up um, in our conversation yet is biofortification. So, Deepika, how, how do you feel about the potential of biofortification and how does it fit into the wider fortification agenda from your perspective?
2: So um, the Gates Foundation has had a long history in the investment of of biofortified crops. We've had good success with vitamin A, iron, and zinc. And I don't think the benefits of biofortification are limited to subsistence farming. I think at one point there was some thought about, well, maybe biofortification is more for um, those who don't purchase foods on the markets um, and fortification is for those who do. But I do think biofortification can work hand in hand with fortification and has many benefits. Um, For instance, if we have more biofortified crops, it could lower the levels and the cost of adding fortificates at the point of processing. Um, You can add back micronutrients that might be stripped out during the processing of the cereals. Um, But, you know, nothing happens in our field overnight. And so, you know, even today where we're seeing areas where biofortified crops are being introduced are not necessarily the areas where we see active fortification programs. But one day we'll get to that convergence and I think they're very complementary interventions, and and governments will need to ensure that they're setting their fortification standards appropriately, given baseline levels of zinc, iron, vitamin A, and other micronutrients that are coming directly from the crops. Um, in the meantime, we continue to advance these very important uh, interventions, um, but I do see them as very complementary.
0: Thank you. It's just been so fascinating um, talking with you both. Just to finish on a less serious note. The question that we like to pose to all the guests on Bite the Talk is, what is your comfort food? Tipika, can you just choose one? My comfort food is cheese, <laughs> in any form. That sounds amazing. And Penjani, what is it for you?
1: We'll be fish. Barbecue fish. So not not everybody's idea of a comfort food.
0: Well, thank you both. So, I, well, we've just learned so much from you both um, in such a short time about the importance of fortification. Um, it's been wonderful to have two such knowledgeable experts on the show, and you've been so kind to give us your time. Please look out for the second Global Summit on Food Fortification coming on November 6th. And thank you, Deepika, and thank you, Penjani, for your time today.
2: Thank you, Sharada.
1: Thank you, Sharada.
0: All right, everyone. Eat healthy, stay safe, and wear a mask.